He's trying to show them that the, what, what the struggles that they went through and that they're just like you and me and that they, what the differences are and two of the big differences in the story of David's life is not just, how, is not just David but another guy named Saul. And who David was is David was a guy who was anointed. Okay? So what we do is um, we vote people into office and things like that. What God does is he puts an anointing on their life. He puts a spiritual empowerment over their life and heaven moves over that person and chooses that person to walk in a certain way or to become something. David received an anointing to be the future king. Saul is the current king. And the big difference between David's life and Saul's life is that David recognized that everything that he had came from heaven. David recognized and had an awareness of Jesus and of the relationship with him, with the Lord. Right? He had this understanding. He knew that everything came from God. He acknowledged God. He saw the blessings and the benefits in his life. Saul received his position from the Lord also, but Saul was neither grateful for it, nor did he honor God in it. Saul saw it only in light of himself, and Saul became very narcissistic. It was all about him. And so he lived a life of basically self-acknowledgement. Saul, at this point in the story, he's lost his way, and he's trying to kill David. David's just a young guy. He's going to be king in the future. Saul's the current king. So rather than mentoring him, whether he, rather than accepting God's word over the, over the situation, Saul should have said, okay, this is what the Lord wants to do. Let me groom this guy. Let me develop this guy. Let me train this guy to be my successor when I die. He didn't do that. He hated David, and he's trying to chase him, and he's pursuing him. He's trying to kill him. Saul's lost it. And in leaving the Lord, he became tormented by spirits. Okay? Saul went into a dark place, he went into a dark path, and he found himself under the influence of things that shouldn't be influencing him, but they were nonetheless. He's chasing David, he's trying to kill him. And he's not just doing it by himself, he's using the resources of the state. Okay? So all the resources at his disposal, he is pursuing David with the army, with the government, everything he had, he was going after David to try to kill him. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Anybody here ever deal with fear before? Yes, all right. Yes, all right. We not only deal with fear, fear is, a, is, is something that's consistent within our lives. And so we need to understand fear. At this point in the story, David is beginning to deal with fear. A fearless guy, a guy who would throw down everything and run out there to face the giant, now he's being confronted with a situation that he doesn't know how to handle. He's being confronted with overwhelming circumstances that he had never experienced before, and he finds himself in a place of fear. All of the circumstances in David's life have turned against him. Everything turned against him. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah? Everything turns against you. And everything turned against David. David goes on the run. He goes down to Judah, which is the sort of the, the state or the province where he was from, and he goes to one of the spiritual centers down there, and it's a city called Nob. And so he goes down to the city of Nob, and he is going to the priest. So David is searching, searching for spiritual help and spiritual guidance in this time of his life because he has nowhere else to turn. And he's trying to turn to the Lord, and so he goes down to Nob, and he visits the priest of the Lord for help. And he goes to Ahimelech, who was the priest of the city. He's hungry, and he's afraid. And he asks the priests for food. Okay? That's the first thing he asks them for. And the priest says, I don't have anything other than the shoe bread. Well, what's the shoe bread? It's literally called show bread. 
the priests were required to maintain 12 loaves of bread inside the temple or the tabernacle, whatever, the, whatever, whatever they had. So where God was worshipped at the time, there was three sections. So they would basically put up a, a, a border of curtains, and then inside there would be a tent. So there would be kind of a courtyard around these cur- inside these curtains, one door, significant of God's presence. We come in one way, and in the outer courtyard of this sort of tent area, there would be an altar, there would be another, another uh, like a bowl with water where they would wash, and then there would be a tent, and the tent had two rooms, and inside the first room, there were three articles of furniture. There was a shoe bread, table of shoe bread, which I'll come back to that. There was a, a, a candelabra, which had, you know, seven candlesticks attached to one that was to burn continually. Then there was another veil, and in front of the veil, there was an altar of incense that was to burn continually. Okay? And beyond the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence was. And so the David comes to the priest and he says, do you have any food? And he says, I don't have anything but the shoe bread, which is only lawful for the priest to eat. Jesus actually references this story. Well, what is a shoe bread? The priests were required to maintain 12 loaves of bread in the presence of God, and they were to change it every week. Well, the 12 loaves of bread were, were uh, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they're inside of, the, inside of the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place, which is the room called. So where the ark was was called the most holy place. The, inner, the outer room was called the, the holy place. These 12 loaves of bread were significant because they symbolized God's people having access to his presence. Also, they were represented by loaves. Those loaves were to be changed every week. That's why you guys come before the Lord. You're the shoe bread. You're coming before the Lord, and you're getting the bread changed every week. You're getting your substance changed every week. Jesus has got a fresh loaf for you this week. He's got something good for you. So they were to change the loaves every week. So David comes before him, and the priests were allowed to eat it. So they were allowed to eat it once, the, once the, you know, they baked the bread. Then at the, when the changeover happened, they were given the loaves, and they were able to eat it. But it was only the priests that were allowed to eat it. So David asked for the shoe bread, and the priest gives it to him. Because the understanding was, and this is why Jesus was confronting, if you go back to the story where Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees were confronting Jesus over whether or not it was right to heal on the Sabbath, or whether it was right to do certain things on the Sabbath day, or the religious assembly day. And Jesus said, have you not read? Okay, that's the first insult. If you're a Pharisee, that's all you did every day was read. That's all you did. That, their whole life was, in, was immersed in the study of the scripture. And so when Jesus looks at him and goes, haven't you read? I mean, they would be like, so the first thing he does is insult their pride. Okay? Jesus would never do that. Of course he would. He's the rock of offense. That's what he does. He offends you, and he moves you off of your position in order that you could humble yourself and receive something new. So the gospel is all about offending people. It really is. You're a sinner. You're lost. You're hopeless and helpless. You can't save you. No matter what you do, you are lost. I was just talking to a guy this week. He said, so what if I raise my family? What if I love my wife, raise my kids, and live a great life and do really good my whole life? Are you telling me I'm going to hell without Jesus? I said, 100% certain. I didn't blink. I didn't stutter. I didn't even question it. 100% certain you're going to hell without Christ. 100%. Because your good works don't save you. And I even asked him, I said, so you're trying to measure your life by your good and your bad. And I said, so how are you doing? Right now, if we were to take a survey of your life, is your good outweighing your bad? 
And the answer to that question is, is you don't know. You don't know. No one knows. But in Christ, you can know, right? And so Jesus was confronting them. He was offending them, pushing them back in order for them to understand that there's a law higher than the one that was written. The law of life supersedes the religious law. And they were all about the religious law. We need to keep ourselves pure and holy. Only the shoe bread can be eaten by priests. We have to ceremonially wash our hands in a certain way before we eat. We cannot heal on the Sabbath. We cannot do good on the Sabbath. They're rubbing grain together and eating grain. Why? That's a work on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do this. They had put the religious law as the highest standard. And Jesus said, you're missing the point. Completely. Completely. That's why churches in the holiness tradition, they don't understand that God's a God of grace. And we want to run around and make sure everybody's holy. I saw you smoking a cigarette, man, out back. I don't know, you know. I saw you coming out of an R-rated movie. Oh, dude, I heard that Jay-Z song going on your radio as I drove, you by, drove by. We're all finger pointers. Righteous and religious finger pointers at one another. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. That's hard for Christians to understand. Oh, all things are lawful. You're free in Christ, but not all things are going to profit you. A lot of the things that you are free to do will bring destruction into your life. The church is not the arbiter of holiness, Christian. The Holy Spirit is the arbiter of holiness. It's not whether you offend the pastor. It's whether you grieve the Spirit of God who is in you and who has sealed you. That's the real question that needs to be addressed. When the Spirit bears witness against your conscience and you violate it, you're grieving the Spirit. It's not my standard that you need to uphold. It's not the church's standard that you need to uphold. It's not a religious institution that you need to uphold. It's the Spirit of God's standard that you need to uphold. And that's the problem. And they had heightened this understanding. We'll say, well, how is that supposed to happen? Well, I can guarantee you that the Holy Spirit bears witness with the conscience. And the Holy Spirit bears witness through the Word. And the Holy Spirit bears witness through the testimony and the teaching. And so and when he's bearing witness, your job is not to poo-poo that off. When he is bearing witness to you, and there are people that come, come here and you tell them that they're, not, that they're not saved and they need to receive Christ, and the Spirit begins to bear witness in their heart, you're not to push that away. Some of you, the Holy Spirit will bear witness to other things that I'm saying here this morning, and what he's bearing witness with you on, you are not to push it away. You are to embrace it and engage it. Some of you will be here this morning, the Lord will be dealing with you, you need to forgive someone, or the Lord will deal with you, you need to apologize to someone, or there's some areas in your life that you need to address, and he's bearing witness with you on that. You need to address it. That's the idea. And they had heightened this understanding of the religious law beyond the law of life. The law of the spirit of what? Life in Christ Jesus sets us free from what? The law of sin and death. The letter kills, but the spirit gives Life. The Word of God means nothing unless it's empowered by the Spirit. The Word of God is insanely powerful. It's a sword, and you can wield it and cut people to pieces with it. Or you can operate by the Spirit of the physician, the great physician, and you can use it to surgically do things in people's lives that bring health and life and not harm. You see the difference? And they were operating by a sword, and they were hacking the people. And Jesus told them, you're a brood of vipers, you're a bunch of hypocrites, you put laws and regulations on people, and you yourself do not hold yourself to the same standard. Sounds like our political system, doesn't it? <laughs> laws and regulations for you, but we're exempt from that. We don't have any regulations over us at all. <laughs> That's how it was. That was the religious system. They put the regulations on the people, but they themselves, they were not accountable to that. And they would judge the people. 
when they themselves were not even accountable to the same standard that they let out. And Jesus called them hypocrites. And this is what's happening here. Abathar, or Ahimelech understood at this time in history that there was a higher law and that this man's life was more important than a religious mandate. Hello. This man's life is more important than us upholding some righteous standard. God set the righteous standard down as a guide. Life is the law. Liberty is the law. That's why when they looked at Jesus when he was going to heal, they were so offended. How dare you violate the Sabbath by healing a guy? I mean, that's how blind they are. There are Christians and there are churches in America that are so blind with religion, they can't see. Just blind. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's like, it's like if a sinner walks into their midst, they're all like freaked out because they're so starched pure and they're so self-righteously perfect that they can't tolerate any kind of imperfection around them. That's why they were offended at Jesus. Jesus hung out with broken people. No perfect people allowed. It didn't matter their social status. Some of them were wealthy. Matthew was rich. He was a tax collector. He was rolling. I mean, the dude was the one with a house on the hills and the 22 rims, man. That's him. He was driving in the Escalade with the tinted windows. That was Matthew. He wasn't hurting. He had plenty of money. So it wasn't an issue of poverty. He was broken spiritually. He had no means to help himself. No means. So that's the issue. And a lot of times we get freaked out because we don't want anybody perfect, anybody broken. And churches wander around and we all want to pretend. Sunday's the day of hypocrisy. You know? It's like we all pretend to be something that we're not. And we just throw that right into the fan and say, forget that, man. We're not that way. We're broken people following Jesus. I'm not perfect, but he is. and He loves me just because. It's not my righteousness that makes me acceptable. It's his. It's not my imperfections or my perfection that makes me acceptable. It's his perfection. Not about me. It's about him. Jesus, friend of sinners, tax collectors, broken people. And so this Ahimelech honored David and understood the, law, the higher law. Next slide. And Saul lost all perspective. Saul's chasing after him. And so when David goes to Ahimelech and he's getting the bread, he looks over and there's this guy named Doeg. And Doeg was the king's keeper of the shepherds. So Doeg worked for Saul. And he was overseeing a portion of Saul's wealth or kingdom wealth. Only problem with that was Doeg was an Edomite. Edomites were traditional enemies of the Jewish people. And so here's, here's just shows you how far Saul had lost perspective. He'd committed kingdom resources into the hands of not just an enemy, but a starch unbeliever. And so here's Doag overseeing the resources of the kingdom, an Edomite. Herod was an Edomite, if that gives you any perspective. He was keeping the king's herd. And so when Doag saw David, he went and ran and told Saul. <laughs> Saul comes, and Saul kills all of the priests. You think Saul had any reverence of God for, at this point? He had no conscience about killing the priests. He does it twice. He murders them all. He said, oh, you helped David? Boom, he kills them all. Kills them all. Then he finds David in another place, sees the priests helping him, boom, he kills them again. No reverence, no respect, no honor, without honor. David's under continual pressure. Everywhere he goes, someone's looking for him. Someone's trying to get him. He had nowhere to run. 
And so what we need to learn from this is it's easy to trust Jesus when you're dealing with one thing. It's very difficult to follow God and to live honorably when the pressure is on in every sphere of your life. Yeah? And we want to look at David, and we either glorify David or we treat him very harshly. But the question is, how would you respond, and how do you respond when every area of your life is under pressure? Every area. Say this with me. Process is the way to position. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in the kingdom or whether it's in life, Jesus is taking all y'all, and that's me too, we're all on a journey of process, and it's not the process that God is emphasizing. He's trying to take you to position. He's trying to elevate your life. Most people fail in the process because they don't understand it's just a process. You ask God for something. Lord, make me a godly husband. Boom, process. Lord, make me a godly wife. Boom, process. Lord, make me a godly parent, a godly whatever it is you want. You're asking God for something. He says, you know what he tells you? You can have it. But you've got to go through the process. That's James and John. We want to sit at your right hand. Jesus said, it's not mine to give, but you can have position if you're able to drink of the cup. Are you able to go through the process? You can have, you can have it. You want it? You have it. But it's a process. That's the issue. And Christians don't understand the process. And we have bad theology and bad teaching in our churches that says if it's difficult, God must not be in it. Who told you that? Where do we get this from? It's nonsense. If it's difficult, Jesus is probably in it. He's teaching you. He's, he's taking something from your life. He's transforming you into who you truly are. Marriage, parenting, success, calling, destiny. Everything involves process. Everything. Everything. There's three things in the Bible that are very significant. Bread, oil, and wine. It's interesting that all three of those things are produced by crushing. Wheat is, has to be crushed before it's made into flour. Wine has to be crushed before it's made, or grapes have to be crushed before they're made into wine. Oil has to be crushed. The olives have to be crushed before it's made into oil. And all three of those are extremely significant markers of our faith. We want the bread, it requires crushing. We want the wine, it requires crushing. You want the anointing, it requires crushing. Jesus went through all of them. He was crushed, he's the bread of life. His wine, his body was crushed, his blood shed. He's the wine, he's the anointing, he's all of that. All of that. And you can have it too. Now, we're not talking about salvation here, people. There's a difference between salvation and purpose. You understand this? Getting saved is not that we, we just have, again, we have these really crazy dynamics. We think that it's just getting saved, showing up and going to church and doing the best we can. That's, that's, that's what we're for. Again, who told you that? That's not in the scripture. It's not in the Bible. We are called to run towards a mark. We're called to reach for the high places. We're called to go forth in his name and to bring the kingdom. That's what we're called to do. All of you are called to a position. All of you are called to influence. All of you are called to some form of leadership. That doesn't mean you're in pastoral ministry, per se, or in the five-fold ministry. Your marketplace is ministry. Your family is ministry. Your neighborhood is ministry. Your finances are ministry. If you ever thought about that, every area of your life is ministry, and we're all called to it. You want more, it requires process. More, say this with me, more I can have if I'm willing to endure the process. 
People quit in the process because it gets hard. It gets hard. Yeah. And David lost everything. Everything. And everywhere he went, he was in the process. And the pressure was on him to see if he was going to speak against the Lord or if he was going to be faithful. The pressure was on him to see if he was going to take matters into his own hands or if he was going to trust God for the end result. He could have cursed God and said, forget this, I don't want anything to do with it. He did kind of go off on a little crazy land experience, but he came back around. He never, he, even though he moved away from his center, he came back to it. He could have killed Saul. He didn't kill Saul. He waited on the Lord. And the pressure's on him to test his character to see if he can handle the weight of greater responsibility. Say, I want to do this. God says, great, let's develop your character so that you can handle the weight of that responsibility. That's why ministries collapse. That's why pastors fall. That's why families split. That's why all of these things happen to us is because our character cannot sustain the wealth that comes upon us. People want money. Most people, if they were given money, they would literally destroy themselves. Literally destroy themselves. We think that giving money to the poor is the answer. Giving opportunity to the poor is the answer. Giving money to the poor is not the answer. I know that's going to rub some of you the wrong way. Because a lot of people, they, as soon as they get money, they go out and destroy themselves. They didn't have a problem with alcohol until they, all of a sudden they got 50 bucks in their pocket. Now they're, you know. It's true. We have to develop the character to sustain it. People cannot sustain what God wants to give them and their life collapses. The issue is not whether God wants to bless. The issue is, is have you allowed your character to be developed to hold it? Have you? I tell people when they get married, it's not saying yes to that girl. It's saying no to every other one. I'm ready to say yes, and I'm ready to say yes right now. I'm like, I'm sure you are. But are you ready to say no to every other one for the rest of your life? If that answer, you can't answer that one, then we better have another conversation. Because that's what marriage is. And that's where you're going to be tested. And that's where the character comes down. The character comes down right there. Crickets. <laughs> circumstances will be relentless until change is produced. Some of you, your circumstances were not changed because you are not changing where God wants you to. It's this constant pressure. Until you make the change, nothing's going to shift. You have to make the shame change spiritually, emotionally, perspective intellectually, Physically, choices, you have to make the change. In order for that environment to change, it's not changing on its own. There's something with you that has to change. And then when you change, all of a sudden the season changes. When you change, everything else changes. Some of you, it's your faith. You don't activate your faith. The devil runs over you like a steamroller. And you're like, oh, God just lets this happen to me. God, Jesus isn't letting anything happen to you. You're letting it happen. You have authority, Christian. Until you learn, it's not going to change. Jesus isn't going to do anything. God, fight the devil for me. He's not going to. He's already fought the devil. He's already crushed the devil's head, and he's given you authority and says, now use it. Exercise what I've given you. And if you won't, then nothing's changing. I'm giving you gospel here. I'm giving you Christianity in the now. Right? This is what this stuff looks like in the real world. This isn't shiny, happy people. You know what I'm saying? We all pretend that this thing, we, we like, it's like the emperor has no clothes. We present a form of Christianity and everybody just kind of pretends. It doesn't look like that. It looks like this. 
We wrestle. You know what it looks like to wrestle? You're going to get an armpit in your face. That's what it looks like. And you know what else it looks like when you wrestle? You're going to have to put your armpit in, somebody, in, that, in that devil's face. You're going to have to get him in a leg lock and go, you will not have my home. Oh, Jesus is just letting all these things happen to me. I just can't believe God won't hear me. He's heard you. And he's given you his spirit. And he's given you his anointing. He's given you his word and his promises. And he expects you to do something foolish. Speak. Pray. Declare. Bind. Loose. That makes no sense. Welcome to the planet. It doesn't make any sense. The foolish things are what confound the wisdom of this world. And God calls us to be fools. And he calls us to be children. And he calls us to humble our pride beneath that of what the world accepts. And we speak to the wind. That's what he told Ezekiel. Prophesy to the wind. The wind? Are you serious? I'm supposed to prophesy to the wind? Prophesy to the wind. Says says in Psalms, speak to the womb of the dawn. That makes no sense. No, duh. It makes no sense. Well, do you mean, tell me the womb? The dawn has a womb? Oh, that's just stupid. Well, according to Jesus, the dawn has a womb. And so we need to speak into the womb of the dawn and declare what that day is going to bring forth. Speak into the womb of the dawn. Makes no sense. It's what he said. Right? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. That makes no sense. March around the city six times, and on the seventh time, blow the trumpet. Who'd do that? No, seriously. Would you do that? He'd be like. And you know what he told him to do? Shut up while you're walking. Don't open your mouth. I don't want to hear your complaints. I don't want to hear your words of doubt. I don't want to hear any kind of conversation about this. I want you to do it. Sometimes, Christian, you got to shut up and do it. And stop complaining, well, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. Just do it. Just do it. Well, I don't feel like it. Feeling has nothing to do with it. you got to get to the point where you realize feeling and emotion, if anything, you're going to have negative emotion. Negative emotion. You're not going to want to do it. Your emotions to do it is going to be negative. And so you have to accept that as the norm. The emotions are negative. That's, that's normal. Do it anyway. It doesn't make sense. Duh. Well, that's normal too. Accept it and do it anyway. You see how this works? I got a couple ahead now. Well, I got, at least I got two. I got two or three in the room. So this is, what, this is what it looks like. Next slide. Until you change, nothing changes. Consider it joy, my brethren, because happens is the process, that's what this verse is talking about, the process is producing something. And one of the things that we fear the most is we fear change. We don't like to change. We don't like change. Jesus is all about change. He is. And you know what he wants to do the most? Change you. But I like me. Well, you know what? Jesus loves you too much to leave you the same. He is working on you. He's transforming you. It's the word metamorpho in the Greek, and it literally means how a caterpillar goes from one state to the other. That's the word picture. God is wanting to transform you from one state to another. He wants to make you who you truly are. He wants to reveal to you who you truly are. You're not a caterpillar until you become a butterfly. Then all of a sudden you're like, wow, I was that? 
But that only happens through encounter. That only happens through transformation. That only happens with alignment of your life into the things of God. If you continually align your life with the culture, you're going to get the culture. Don't expect anything different. Until you align every aspect of your life with the kingdom, seek first the kingdom and what is right to him. Until you do that, nothing's coming. But once you align with the kingdom, and once you live towards the kingdom, and every area of your life is lining up with the kingdom, it's not what I say, it's what he says. It's not what I want, it's what he wants. And you line it up, then you seek first the kingdom, and that is what's right to God. Now things start being added to you. You want to know why things aren't being added to you? Because you're not seeking first the kingdom and what is right to him. Let's just make no mistake about this. Let's be very clear. You say, well, I don't want to seek the kingdom. That's fine, you don't have to. I'm saved and I like doing my own thing. Okay, go do that. But don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. James says you're double-minded. The double-minded, the one that says, well, I want it on my own terms, you're double-minded. And it says, okay, you can be double-minded, but just understand that you will receive nothing from the Lord. I would rather have God's blessing a thousand times more than I would have a million blessings from people. The Lord's blessing, he adds no sorrow to it. The Lord's blessing, what he gives, no one can take it away. What men give, they can take it away. When men honor you, they can take back their honor. When Jesus honors you, he doesn't take it back. The gifts and callings are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. What he gives, he blesses you with. Oh, I could go off on this, but I won't. I'm going to keep moving. Pressure reveals what we believe about Jesus. That's what it does. When the pressure comes on you in all of these areas of your life, and you're completely disoriented. I'm not talking about four areas of your life are going right and one's going wrong. David had every area of his life under pressure. Financial, relational, spiritually, every area of his life was under pressure. Every area. And what it does is it reveals what we believe about God. Is God good? Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he is able? Do you believe that he is willing? And do you believe that he cares? That's the question. What it does is it reveals your belief system. It reveals what you believe about yourself. It reveals what you trust in. Right? You can lose everything, but if you trust in Jesus, it's coming back. If you understand the kingdom and the principles. It's come, I said it's coming back. I don't care what you lose. I serve the God of the resurrection. Nothing dies without the power of life to come back. And in God, the what dies comes back in a greater form. That's who I serve. So the, the loss means nothing. I do not count my life dear to myself. It doesn't mean anything. What matters is the glory and the God and the power that I carry. And understanding that and learning how to release that. That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. And so when the pressure's on, it shows you what you trust in. You trust it in your relationship. You trust it in your bank account. You trust it in your degree. You trust it in your knowledge. You trust it in your family. You trust it in who you thought you were. And what, the, what pressure shows you is that everything you trust in cannot be counted on. If you think you're going to count on your bank account, just hold on. I'm serious. If you think you're counting on your... On your uh, you know, your social media status or whatever it is that you're, you're putting your faith in, that stuff shifts like the sand, man. Money comes and money goes. It's, man, it's just the reality. But it shows you, do you know do what you trust in? It shows you, do you know who you are? I've lost everything. I don't care. Son of the highest, take your pace. Take your rightful place. You are not a beggar. This, you are not subject to this world. This world is subject to you. It took you 10 years to get it. It'll take you three to get it back. Yeah. 
I'm serious. Anybody that knows Jesus, knows it, and has experienced this, knows exactly what I'm talking about. He, you can get it back faster because you know more now. And you make less mistakes. You don't make five years of mistakes. You know, well, I'm not doing that again. This is the way. Do you know who you are? Oh, God just doesn't love me. And, you know, if this wouldn't be happening to me, if God didn't love me, you don't know who you are. You have no clue. And the pressure has just revealed to you, you don't know who you are. I didn't say it didn't love you. What I said is you don't know who you are. So the challenge is, is now you discovering who, who, who am I? And you have to take yourself by the horns and you have to grip your life and you have to speak what is true over your life. Sons and daughters, people. Heirs, full, adopted with full rights of inheritance. I don't feel that way. I don't care what you feel. That's what heaven says about you. Take your rightful place. The bread is for the children. Well, who are the children? We're the children. Those who are in Christ are the children. We're all children of God. Wrong theology. The world is not children of God. The world is God's creation. Those in Christ are the children of God. To those who receive Jesus, those are the ones that were given the power to be children of God. No one else. They're God's creation. You're the children. In Christ, you're the children. You are heirs with full rights. And the bread is for you. Just a thought. Knowledge, do you, do you, how do you see yourself? Do you know you, what your authority is? That's what pressure shows you. You have to take authority in the face of overwhelming opposition. You have to take authority in the face of the Goliaths and the Giants and the Amalekites and being outnumbered 100 to 1. You have to stand and take authority. I don't want to do that. Well, then you're going to get run over. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The violent take it by force. I'm giving you, like, kind of stuff. I know it sounds a little aggressive the way I'm teaching. I'm not trying to be aggressive. But on, this is the way life is. A lot of you have been, like, ravaged, you know? And the enemy overwhelms you sometimes. And life overwhelms you sometimes. And you feel like just all of this. And your perspective is, is God's doing it to you? Well, first of all, God's not. And second of all, my intention is to show you who you are. Who you are. Next slide. David was afraid, okay? He asked for a weapon. This is the same David that said... You come at me with sword and spear, I come at you in the name of the Lord. He never needed a weapon before. Why does he need a weapon now? Because he's afraid. And because he's lost his confidence. And he's trying to protect himself. He's lost confidence that the Lord will protect him. Oh, no, not David. Yeah. Never needed a weapon before. Didn't need a, lot, a weapon when he fought a lion. Didn't need a weapon when he, fought the, uh, when he fought the bear. Didn't need a weapon. He only needs a couple of rocks when he fought Goliath. He said, the Lord's my, my shield, the Lord's my buckler, the Lord's my armament, but here he needs a weapon. Fear is the gatekeeper to the next level, Christian. Anybody want to go to another level in their life? I don't care what, pick a level, pick anywhere. Man, I just want to go, I want to develop spiritually, I want to develop emotionally, I want to go relationally. I mean, pick an area. Anybody want to go to another level? Fear's the gatekeeper. You're not going there without going through fear. There's no way around him. You must go through it. Fear makes us, so here we go, fear makes us uncomfortable. Makes you uncomfortable physically, makes you uncomfortable emotionally, and makes you uncomfortable spiritually. This is what it does. We want to go to another level, right? So what happens is fear is a spirit. So I'm going to talk to you about two quick levels of, of fear. Level one is fear is the atmosphere of, 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 of fear. Fear, in all of its forms, is a spirit. The Bible claims it clear, very clearly as a spirit. 
Spirits create atmospheres and spirits create influence. The atmosphere over your life is created by the spirit of fear. The influence that's created in your life through fear is through a partnership that you have internally with a lie. Fear would have no influence over you if you didn't have, if you didn't have a partnership with a lie. The atmosphere of fear is completely different than the bondage of fear. The atmosphere comes over you, grips you, paralyzes you, trying to get you to agree with it and so it can dominate you and influence all decisions and all actions. Fear wants to so overwhelm you that every decision and every action you make is based on fear and not faith. Well, we can't do that. Oh, you know. Christians are doing it now, man. We see, we see things and let's, let's look at the church. We need to build a cabin in the woods. The apocalypse is coming. You know, we need to put 10,000 gallons of gas underground and we need to create storehouses and we need to do all that. Now, what's that based on? Do you not think God is capable of providing? I mean, what, what, is, what is that decision based on? Is that motivated by fear? Fear wants to influence your life to such a degree that every action and every decision, you won't apply for the job because you're afraid you don't have what it takes. You won't get married because somebody's going to see you for who you are and you think they're not going to like you. You don't want to be intimate with God because you're afraid that God's going to see into your life and he may not accept you. It's fear. Fear wants to dominate and influence all decisions and all actions. That's the atmosphere of fear. The atmosphere of fear is completely gone. You have authority over it. You, all you got to do is worship, acknowledge what is true, and fear has to go. And I'm going to show you some other ways to get rid of fear. But fear is a bondage. When you are constantly in fear, there is a lie that you are in covenant with. And you can pray and bind that spirit and tell it to go, but it comes right back. Sits down on your couch and starts eating Doritos. Because you're in agreement with a lie. You're in agreement with a lie. And I don't have time to develop that, but that's the bondage of fear. When people are in bondage to fear, they're in partnership with a lie. We all are going to have to go through atmospheres of fear, all of us. We're going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. That sounds like an atmosphere of fear to me. But David wasn't in bondage when he went through the atmosphere of fear. The atmosphere of fear is different than the bondage of fear. There are people who are bound by fear in every way. And they function nominally. But there are areas where they just get gripped by fear all the time. That's the bondage of fear, and there is a lie. Somewhere there, there's a lie. You have to find that lie and break covenant with it. Next slide. If you don't confront and overcome fear in the areas of your life, you'll never change. You'll remain the same. God's not going to say this with me. Jesus has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And here we see the overcoming of fear. So how do we overcome fear? Well, number one, you've got to recognize that fear is not from the Lord. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. When you're in an atmosphere of fear, and all of your decisions are based on fear and afraid, and I don't know, and we might lose, and we might, what happens if we don't do this right? You know, when all of your decisions are based on fear, that is not of the Lord. It's not. When your fear is the fear of man, or the fear of failure, or in some cases the fear of success, that fear is not of God. You have to recognize that fear is not of God. How do we overcome fear? By power, love, and a sound mind. What does that look like? Power means confession. Fear says nobody likes you. Power says Jesus likes me, and that's the only opinion that matters. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me. Jesus likes me. I have an audience of one. That's it. If he's happy with me, then what else matters? And he's always happy with me. He's in a good mood, right? 
That's confession. What do you say? What do you say? Your confession is what you have to recognize. You have to pray. Bind the spirit of fear. Declare the things. Anointing and presence. Psalm 34 says, exalt the Lord together. Praise Jesus. Thank God. You have power in you. Access your anointing. Come together with other believers. There's another. Exalt the Lord together. Speak forth. In Psalm 34, David, which is writing the psalm based on, psalm, on second, or 1 Samuel 21, that psalm came out of that story. David does three things. He exalts the Lord. He speaks forth what God has done. He speaks forth what God is doing. And he speaks forth what God is going to do. That's the context of that psalm. And he was afraid. Clearly he was afraid. And he wrote that psalm out of that context of fear. And how did he overcome fear? He spoke forth. God has delivered me. God is delivering me. God will deliver me. I am his. He loves me. I am righteous before him. He will never fail. He has never failed me. He is not failing me now, nor will he fail me in the future. I mean, he goes into a whole bunch of different layers, but he does those three things over and over again. What God has done, what God is doing, what God is going to do. Love. Here's the second one. So power overcomes fear. Power is not going to help you with the lies. If you're in the bondage of fear, you're going to have to deal with the lies and why you believe them. You're going to have to deal with it. You have to confront why you believe what you believe. Why do I believe no one likes me? Why do I believe I'm unworthy? Why do I believe I'm unlovable? Why do I believe I'm inadequate? Why believe I can't? Why do I believe these things? You have to confront the lie. What you believe, God says this and you believe that. That's a lie. Devil operates in covenant with lies. He had to get Adam and Eve into a lie. As soon as he got him into lies, he, assessed, he assumed power. That's how he gets power over us. He has no authority over us, but he has authority through the lies that we believe. Well, God doesn't heal today. That's a lie. Who told you that? God, I can't prophesy. I could never walk in the Spirit. That's a lie. Who told you that? I'll never succeed. I won't prosper. That's a lie. I'm never going to get married. God doesn't have anyone for me. That's a lie. Who told you that? No, seriously, who told you that? I can tell you right now, Jesus isn't telling you that. None of that. And there's more. There's a lot of things he's not telling you that we believe. Do you know that you're loved? So love overcomes fear. Do you know you're loved? Do you know who loves you? Here's the question. Do you know, Christian, not here, but do you know that you are loved? And do you know who loves you? It's the question. Christians struggle deeply with unworthiness. We know that we're loved in some kind of abstract form, but we don't really, I'm, I'm loved. I can do no wrong. I didn't say I do everything right, but in God's eyes, there is nothing that I can do that will separate me from him with his desire to love me. What can separate us from the love of God? That's not a poem. You are loved and you are perfectly accepted. It doesn't mean that everything you're doing is right. It doesn't mean that the choices that you make are going to produce a good result. That's not what it means, but it means you're loved. In spite of your situation, in spite of your circumstances, even in spite of your choices. Your choices, your choices do not disqualify you from Jesus' love. Your choices can disqualify you from your destiny, but your choices cannot disqualify you from his love. And so let's define love. Love is to seek the highest good. God will always be working in your life to bring about the best good, a good that's better than what you understand. Love is not an emotion to the Lord. It's not a feeling. It's not this deep, you know, engaging emotion that he has. Love is an intention to bring about the highest good. That's how God loves us. God so loved. His intention was to bring about our highest good, so he sent Jesus, which is our highest good, salvation. Everything is towards our highest good. 
Do you know that you're worthy? Ephesians chapter 1 is a good verse for you guys, or a good chapter for you guys to read. It says you're chosen. Say it with me. I'm chosen. I'm chosen. You're chosen. chosen. That's right. Why am I chosen? Because you chose Jesus. He's chosen the world to choose him. But the world, not all in the world, will choose him. But those who do choose him are chosen by him. That's how it works. Jesus has chosen the world. And then when you choose him, you become the chosen. You're chosen. You're not ordinary. You're not, you're not beneath. You are actually above. Say this with me. I'm blessed with spiritual power. I am holy without blame. <laughs> you are, say this. I have a predetermined destiny. I am adopted with full rights of inheritance. There is no love and fear, but perfect love casts out fear. Next slide. Last slide, I think. I'm running out of time. Sound mind. So we have to know we have power. We have access to power. We have access to love. And I'll take you through an exercise at the end here. So the last one is the sound mind. God's giving you a sound mind. What's a sound mind? It's the mind of Christ. It's the ability to understand and think from heaven to earth. The access of the mind of Christ through the power of the Spirit. That's what it looks like. You have to activate the mind of Christ. You've got to get into the Spirit and begin to activate the mind of Christ. You have access to the mind of Christ. You say, I don't know what it looks like. Well, have you ever gone there? You get in the spirit and you're just like, wow, I see things differently. I think differently. Huh, what if I started engaging my circumstances now that I'm in the spirit and I'm in the mind of Christ? Lord, what do you say about that? Is there wisdom or insight that I've not seen before? You have to activate the mind of Christ and you have to, act, and you have to practice the mind of Christ. It's one thing to activate. It's another thing to practice it. You can develop the mind of Christ to where your thinking processes begin to nothing to, but to align with him. You can continually practice the mind of Christ. I refuse to think about earthly things. I refuse to look at myself and try to look at resources based upon what I have and what I don't have. I say, what do you say, Lord? What is your word? What is your counsel? What is your will? Acknowledge the situation. So the mind of Christ doesn't mean the situation isn't bad. You can look at the situation and go, the situation's bad, but Jesus. You understand that? Situation's bad, but I'm a child of God. I will pass through the waters and they will not overtake me. I will go through the fires and they will not, I will not be consumed. I will walk in storms. Crickets? <laughs> I thought I'd get an amen out of that one. Anyway, line your attitude and your thoughts up with God's words, with your confessions and your actions. Sound mind. Do your words line up with what is true? Does your thinking line up with what is true? Do your actions line up with what is true? This is how we overcome fear. You overcome fear. You're not going to overcome the emotions of fear, people, but you can overcome fear itself. Fear will always be a negative emotion. It's just there. But you can master it, and you can move through it, and you can overcome fear. Casting down vain imaginations and everything that high thing that exalts itself in knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity the obedience of Christ. What set, Jesus says this, your circumstances say that. Well, which one's better? Who, who's, who's, whose opinion is really true? If Jesus says this about you or about your circumstance, and your circumstance says this about you, which one is right? What the Lord said, Jesus is always the answer. And any, any question I ask you, just go, Jesus. That's always the answer. 
okay? <laughs> so you take, you take, you take what, what the situation says and you pull it down. You say you're going to be broke. I'm going under. It's going to fail. What Jesus says, you'll be above only and not beneath. You cannot be defeated unless you quit. I mean, I, mean, I could go on. I'm having, you take what this says and bring it into subjection. I'm not going to live according to this. I'm going to live according to this. Amen. Amen. All right, I want you to stand on your feet for a minute, if you would, please. We're going to close right here. I'm done. I'm over. Even though we started on time, Kevin still went over. <laughs> it is okay, right? So we do this exercise, all right? So when I do inner healing with people, one of the exercises is to just receive the love of God, learning to receive the love of God, okay? I'm just trying to see if I out how he wants me to do this. I'm winging it, so we're going to wing it. All right, I just want to see yourself in the spirit. And as best as you can see, whether by faith or by encounter, I want you to see the Lord say something to you. He says this to you. He says, I would like to give you a gift. And he asks your permission to give him the gift. Does he have your permission? You have to verbalize it. I want you to, does he have your permission to give you a gift? Yes. So I want you to see, feel, however, see the Lord laying his hand on your head and his hand on your heart. And as soon as he lays his hands on you, there's a power coming into you. And I want you to feel power resonating in you. Power just begin to move inside of you. And as that power begins to move, I want you to open up your spirit and let it get bigger. And into that power comes down into that is the words perfectly, perfectly loved. So I want you to let perfect love come into you with that power. and Just begin to move through you. Just begin to resonate inside of you. Perfect love. And he's going to release another thing. It's called accepted. And I want you to give yourself permission. And I want you to receive the power. And I want you to receive perfect love. And I want you to receive acceptance. And I want you to let it move out as far as it'll go. It's going to move out. It's going to resonate. It's going to literally move out really beyond you. And then I want it to come down. And you're just going to feel this place of stillness and this place of rest. And when we hit that place of stillness and we hit that place of rest, that's the fullness. Just receive it. I'm just going to give you about five seconds here to just do it. You can go home and practice this again if you want. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that you love us, that we are accepted in you, and that perfect love casts out fear. When we are perfectly loved, there is no room for fear. Fear has no authority over us. We are loved. If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from your love? So, Father, we want to honor you for your love. We want to honor you for your acceptance, and we want to bless you today. And I want to bless these people with everything you came to bring to them. So I just release that. I just activate that, and I honor you into their lives. And let me bless you one more time. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. We got a um, potluck this afternoon. Come back for it after the 11.30.